Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Yeah, I found myself during worship when we were singing, um, come and do what only you can do, and I just found myself on my knees and saying, God, we don't want something that we can do. Like in our lives, what we have and, and what we're called to, like God, we don't want it to be something that we can do. It has to be something that only you can do. You have to be in it, God. You have to be the way. You have to, it has to be one of those things where we're like, every day we wake up and we're like, God, I've, I'm standing on the edge of this thing and my toes are tingling and I know you're saying to jump, God, but I need you if I'm going to do this. You know, like that, that finding myself in those moments. I mean, it, it, the moments when you're just resting safely in his arms, those are incredible, but those are so that you will build a, a history and a trust with him so that the times you're standing on the edge and your toes are tingling, and your palms are sweaty, and you're nervous. You can trust him, because you've been with him. There's something about being with him when nobody else knows. There's something about when they saw the disciples, and they remarked, these are unlearned men, but they have been with Jesus because of the way that they live their lives. There's something about that time spent alone with him. I love when we gather together, but if, if all we're doing is, is making it through the week just to get to another gathering, we're missing out on so much of what he gave his life for. Like, I promise you, he wants you to come after him in worship when you're alone the way you come after him in worship when you're around other people. Maybe even more. I get silly alone. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I don't know. You just, you just realize, like, no one's around to see. <laughs> it's just you, Lord. You know, the cool thing about that is, is you're reminding your heart, I'm not doing this for anyone but him. Because if you'll only do in front of people what you won't do alone, it's a performance. It's not actual worship. Just make sure that, that the things that we're doing in front of people are the minimum of what we're doing when we're alone with him. That goes in all areas, not just worship. Hey, Jim. Hey, Frida. Good to see you guys. Yeah. They head to Colorado every year. It's probably awesome there, but I love when I see them back. Um, I, this morning, I want to talk to us about something super practical, um, but I feel like it's a huge part of, of living this life that Jesus has called us to live. Um, and, it, and it was birthed out of the tension of of scriptures, and, and I love when, when we have these tensions in scriptures, and we just get before the Lord, and we start digging in, and start really asking him to open it up to us, um, because we realize, like, there's nothing in scripture that discounts or makes another part of scripture void, and so they have to work together, and, um, and part of that is, is what does it look like to live with a heart that's free from offense, and with an with a attitude of forgiveness towards people, but still be people who see and can correct each other and call each other out on things. Because here's the thing, like if love keeps no record of wrong, doesn't consider a wrong suffered, if, if we're to be like God and he's forgiven us and is longer counting our sins against us, then what does it look like to be those who walk in forgiveness yet are still able to confront each other and call each other out when we see each other in a thing that we were never meant to be in? 
And so I, I just was kind of wrestling through that. I actually had it raised to me in, in the, in the, in the uh, context of marriage by some people, and it really forced me to, to really dig in because I know what I think in my heart, but I never want to just give an answer out of what I think or what I believe to be true without being able to say, and here's where you can find this in the Word. Here's where you can see this in the life of Jesus. Like, we have to make sure that our theology is actually something we can go to the Scriptures and say, this is when Jesus did this. This is what it looked like. This is what was written to us for our instruction. This is what the Spirit of God said about this. Otherwise, you get out there in weird land where you're just taking what feels right and you'd let astray by feeling so quickly because they can deceive you so easily. Like, like feelings are, are, are great accompaniments to life, but they're horrible masters. Horrible. It's amazing to have good feelings. He's amazing even when we don't. Like, I love the feeling I have when I'm worshiping him. And don't get me wrong, like, we, I say this, I'm serious. If you really think that you're not meant to experience any kind of emotional response when you're standing there worshiping the one who gave his life for you, something's disconnected. Something's disconnected. I'm not saying it has to look like someone else's response, but I am saying your heart should be coming alive as you're, at what's coming out of your mouth. Your, your mind is starting to think about the things that you're saying, and you're saying the prodigal is welcome home, the sinner is now a saint. For the God who died has come back to life, and everything has changed. Like, your heart should start coming alive when you hear that. Like, this, this should not be this stoic thing of like, oh, yeah, the sinner's now a saint, the God who died came back to life. Like, no, if you really are thinking about that, it's like he looked at me at my worst and thought that my life was worth the life of Jesus, and he willingly and gladly shed his son's blood for the redemption of my life so that my life lived could look like Jesus' life modeled if I would just come to him and be born again and be filled with his spirit and be alive for him and dead to sin, alive to Christ, dead to the old. The old has passed, the new. When we hear these things, like literally, it should wreck us every time because it's a fresh revelation of what's true, what always has been, and what always will be. And your response might not look like my response, but man, there should be something going off inside of us because our hearts are wired for that truth. They're wired for that. Like he's placed that within the heart of humanity to respond when those things are, are talked about and sang about. So, um, so I was thinking about this whole thing of like, you know, forgiveness and, and what does it mean to walk with forgiveness? And then there's all these verses that talk about it. So I was well, we'll get there in a second, but um, Jesus, because sometimes we, we, we compartmentalize things and we're like, well, you know, like if somebody accidentally does something, it's easy to forgive them because they didn't even know what they were doing, right? Like, like, well, I mean, they didn't do that on purpose, so it's like you, you don't even have a hard time with offense. Like, that's an easy thing to keep my heart free of offense if you accidentally did something you didn't even know you did. But then there's those times where people knew what they were doing. They knew it. They premeditated it. And we allow ourselves to have a different position of our hearts sometimes because we look at it and say, well, they should know better, or they knew better, or they knew what was going to happen, or they knew, and, and we start to feel like, well, now I have a right to feel this way because, and here's the thing. So I, I was thinking about that, and I'm like, what about Jesus? So Jesus, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and it says, and from that day, the Pharisees began to plot how they would kill him. Years later, they still are plotting. This is premeditated. When he's going to the cross, it's not like they were sitting there one day, they tripped and fell and some nails landed in his hands. 
You know, it, it wasn't like it was a spur of the moment thing. This was premeditated. They were working behind the scenes, hatching a plot to see him killed. They beat him. They pulled his beard out. They punched him and said, oh, you're a prophet. Tell us who hit you. They spit on him. They hurled insults on him. They nail him to a cross. They lift him up and raise him up. And he's hanging there by the weight of these nails, ripping into his flesh. And he looks out and says, Father, forgive him. They don't know what they've done. They don't know what they do. What do you mean they don't know what they do? They knew what they were doing. No, they didn't. Because if they really knew who he was, they would really knew who they are. And if they really knew who he was and who they were, they would have never done the thing that they did. So whether they thought they knew or not makes no difference. And he doesn't allow himself to take an offense simply because of what they've done to him. He allows his heart to not be changed because he's only doing it out of love for them to begin with. Why would he let them doing the thing he's giving himself up for change his response and change his heart? Why would he let the position of his heart be dictated by men's ignorance or willful cruelty and hatred? He says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that moment, what he's saying is, Father, I have no need inside of me that has to be met for my sake by them seeing what they've done wrong in order for me to not hold it against them. See, we sometimes give ourselves permission to hold on to something and say, well, well, they've never asked me to forgive them. Or, well, the Bible says, you know, if your brother comes to you and repents, then you forgive them. But here's the point. The Bible isn't saying that at the expense of you living like Jesus in the process. The Bible never says if your brother sins against you, it's okay to harbor anger, frustration, bitterness, and offense in your heart and walk around carrying those things for a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, a cent. Like how long is it okay to walk around holding on to something in your heart that he died for you to be free from because a person hasn't responded in the way that they should? The truth of the matter is, is if that's going on in our lives, Jesus isn't Lord, they are. Because our ability to have a free heart that's unoffended it depends on their response rather than Jesus's. And we're giving them the authority of our life and saying, I'm not okay and I won't be okay until you realize what you did was wrong and you come to me and you ask me and then I'll forgive you. No, the forgiveness that you release when a brother comes to you after you've rebuked him or after he's realized he's done something wrong is not something you conjured up in the moment based on their response. It's a position of your heart that was established long before they did the thing wrong. Because you gave up your right to hold something against somebody when Jesus gave up his right to hold your sin against you. Why would we give ourselves permission to respond to somebody less than he responded to us and then call ourselves followers of Jesus? And look, I, I, I promise you, I'm not saying it's easy all the time, but I am saying it's simple. The gospel is not always easy but it's super, super simple. Like I gave up my right to respond to you less than Jesus when I took the response of Jesus and allowed that to change me and take away the penalty for my sin. Why would I now enforce the penalty for yours? But here's the thing. So that is 100% true. But turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Because I'm like, okay, so if that's true, then how do we ever even talk to each other about things that people do wrong? Or if somebody does wrong you, like if the attitude of your heart is forgiveness towards them and it's already forgiven, then why would you bring it up to them? 
Here's why. And I love this because I was asking the Lord, I'm like, God, I have to see this in Scripture. I have, you have to show me this. And it's like the greatest example ever of it because it's the greatest crime that humanity has ever committed is nailing the Savior of the world to the cross. Okay, it's Jesus who did nothing but heal their sick, raise their dead, feed them when they were hungry, love them, protect them, calm their storms. Like he did everything for them. He lays their life down for them. He gets on his knees and washes the feet of the man who's going to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. And he knows the man is planning to do it. Like we look back sometimes and regret and go, well, if I would have known they were going to do that, I never would have. Jesus already knew and he did. Let that gospel pierce our hearts and take away our rights. I'm serious. Like the less rights we have, the more righteousness we'll walk in. Because one comes at the expense of the other. We, how many? I've done it. Well, if I'd have known they were going to respond that way, I never would have. And what we're revealing is that we did what we did for the response of a man rather than out of response to what Jesus has already done. How about this? He already knows. And he humbles himself and gets on his knees and he washes the feet of the man who in his heart has already plotted to sell him to be killed. And then he said, follow me. And the things I do, you'll do. And we get worried about whether that's miracles. How about forgiving people and not holding an attitude towards people who have done things to us that they knew were wrong? Never mind the mistakes. Like, we can make it all about, like, you know, the miracles and all these things, because he was talking about those things. That's included. He said, if you don't believe the words I speak, at least believe on, behalf, on, on account of the miracles. And I tell you the truth, he that believes in me, the things I do, he'll do, and greater things, because I go to the Father. And we get so caught up in the fact that he was talking about miracles that we forget the fact that he's talking about getting on his knees and washing the feet of a man who's going to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Let's start there. Maybe we would see the rest of it. Y'all aren't ready. I'm, when, 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 when you seek him and you, and you find revelation on something, it is like, yeah. uh, I, I start jumping up and down. I was in my basement when I started putting these dots together by the Spirit of God showing me stuff, and I was literally jumping up and down in the air and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because I need that. I need to hear him speak, and I need to be able to see it in his life and demonstrate it in his word. Because otherwise, I'm building my house on a foundation that's on sand, and one day a storm's going to come that my sandy little foundation can't hold up to, and everything I've built is going to be collapsed if I'm not seeking him out and saying, I have to have you, and I have to know it's you, and I have to build my life on you. So second, you guys at Acts 2? This is like months later, maybe a year later. Peter's standing before the very men who crucified Jesus, the very ones who Jesus looked out at and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They know not what they do. Peter says this, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why did Peter have to bring to their attention something that Jesus, years before, had said they were already forgiven for? Because the forgiveness that Jesus extended was on his half. 
This is what he's talking about when he says, um, if you, well, you don't have to turn there. I'll just, I'll just read it. In Ephesians 4, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How did God in Christ forgive us? While we were yet in sin, he sent his son. Long before I responded and asked to be forgiven, he sent his son to take the penalty for my sin. And, and, that, and then you realize what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. He's saying on God's behalf, when Jesus came and did what he did and the price was paid and the penalty was paid, he's no longer counting their sins against them. His heart towards them is you are forgiven and you have been forgiven for every sin that was, that is, and that will be for all. He says he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He says that's what God was doing with Christ. He was reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting their sins against them. He says, so now we beg, we ask, as though he asks through us, you be reconciled to God. He's saying, you understand what you've done wrong so that you can actually repent, think differently, change the way that you live because the way that you think has changed, and you, for your part, can actually be free from the things that were causing this breach in relationship that God already took care of on the cross. Now it's your turn on your end for you to understand what you did wrong, not because God is in heaven angry with a need for you to see what you did wrong, but because you're on earth with sin in your heart that's keeping you from walking in the light as he is in the light. So you go to your brother, not because you're offended at him, not because you're angry at him, and not because you need him to repent. In fact, if you need him to repent for you to be okay, stay away. Look, I can show you that scripturally. Matthew chapter 7. This is one of those verses where everybody knows this verse. People that don't even believe in God quote this. It's the truth. Matthew 7 verse 3. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? How many of you have used that as a defense mechanism when somebody came to you and corrected you? Come on. Oh, yeah? What about the log in your eye? It's like, th th that's not the point of this. The point of this was not to give you defense against being corrected. The whole point of this is spelled out a little bit later. He says, or how can you say to your brother, take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Here's the point of this whole thing. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The whole point of this is so that you actually can help your brother. Not to, so your brother can look at you and say, oh yeah, you're going to talk to me about that. Well, what about? You hypocrite, take that out of your own eye. Then you can come talk to me about that. If, if, our, if our response when someone comes to us to correct us is to try to think of what's wrong with them so we can point out their log, we have so much pride in our hearts and we're so far from living in humility and being submitted one to another, just being honest. That verse was never meant as a defense mechanism against correction. It's actually a way to correct each other in love. Look at it in the original language. This is incredible. In the original language, it says, your brother has a karphos, a dry twig in his eye. And he says, there, it's there. Like, there, there is something there. He's not saying there's nothing wrong with your brother. He's, there legitimately is something there. There's a dry little twig is the word that it used, a karphos. He says, but you, you've got a dokos. You know what a dokos is? A beam. 
You know the difference between a twig, a dried little, the smallest part of a tree, a twig, and a beam is? They're both made of the same material, but one has been crafted by human hands. He says, what they did to you caused you to create something that's keeping you from being able to see. (laughs) He says, the twig, the little problem, the offense, the thing that they did, you took that, and out of the same tree, you went and crafted something with your own hands. And maybe, just maybe, you've had other people help you polish the beam. And every time, that beam gets more and more beautiful. And every time, that thing becomes the thing that keeps you from seeing your brother correctly so that you can actually help him with the thing that's wrong. Oh, yeah, we'll build beams. And and then you know what we do? We go to other Christian friends, and instead of them loving us enough to telling us the truth, they tell us the thing that we think that we that, that they think we want to hear, and it makes us feel better in a moment, and all they're doing is making that beam more beautiful because now not only do I think this way, but so does Patty. In fact, Patty told me that if it was her, her response would be way worse than mine. And she told me that she can't believe, it. and she also heard not only that, they did it to somebody else. And every time that happens, that beam gets a little bit more polished, a little bit more perfect looking. And we walk around with this beautiful beam, rehearsed story in our eye. And it's keeping us from being able to see our brother the way that we should be able to. And God says, listen, you deal with that thing that's in your eye, that thing that you've created, the offense that human hands have made. You deal with that thing, and once you've dealt with that, then you're actually capable of seeing your brother in a way that you can go to him and correct and and tell him about what's wrong in a way that won't damage him. Because you know what happens a lot of times? We run into the room with our big, beautiful beam and all of our rights. And we smash a bunch of people in the face with that thing. And we can't see clearly, so we reach to grab the twig and we pluck out an eye with it and we leave them worse than we found them because we went there with something wrong with us and we justified what was wrong with us because there was something wrong with them. And if they would just see what was wrong with them and they would admit it and own it, then I would be okay. He doesn't say, go to them and let them pull the beam out of your eye. He says, you deal with that. You deal with that. You get alone. You find out, why did that thing have a place to land in my life? What is it, God, that I'm not seeing? You get alone. That's what he says. He says, you get the beam out of your own eye. Listen, you can't take the beam out of your own eye. But you can get alone with him, and he can. You can get alone with him, and you can ask him, why did I get so offended? Why did I get so hurt? Why did that thing, that little thing in their life, cause this huge thing in mine? Where everything I see now is clouded by the beam. Like literally, my vision is coming under the influence and the shade. Everything is shaded by this huge beam that's protruding from my forehead. And so I can't even see clearly. And I'm worried that they have a twig in their eye. You know what? The twig is a worry. But the greater worry is the thing that we're walking around with that the twig cost. So it says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, 
forgive him. What that's saying is make sure you've dealt with your heart so that when you go to them, it's out of love for them, not out of love for yourself. It's out of seeing their need versus out of your need so that you genuinely are going to them with a heart of humility and compassion, not out of a need that you have to be right or to be vindicated because you've already been vindicated by Jesus. Why would you need it from a man? If I've been forgiven, why would I have a need for you to ask me for forgiveness before I would freely extend to you the thing that was freely extended to me long before I knew I had a need? Look, let it challenge you. He said, be like me. He said, those who walk in this life, who claim the name of Christ, must in this life walk as he walked. You show me a place where Jesus held on to the right to be unforgiving towards somebody and, and said to them, I'm over here upset and I'm angry and I'm mad and, and until you see what you did wrong, I am going to have hatred and anger and bitterness in my heart until you decide that you're going to get your act together. No, 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 just as Jesus. Jesus comes and he gets rejected by the very people he sent to him. What does he do? He goes up on a hill, he looks down at the city and he cries and he weeps, but it's not because he's offended. He's not up there needing them to see him for who he is so that he can be okay. His tears are not for himself, they're for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I would have loved to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does with her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. And he weeps because of what's wrong with them, not because of what's broken in him by them. And all he wants to see is them redeemed. And guess what? Stephen comes along. Well, that's Jesus. Yeah, and he's the standard. Let's not write ourselves hall passes and say, well, that was Jesus, because he said, be like me. So you're saying you're just like Jesus? I'm saying he's my goal, and if he's my goal, I'll end up a whole lot more like him than if he's not. Are you saying you do this perfectly every time? No, I don't. I wish I did. But that doesn't change the truth that I find in his word. My lack of being able to perfectly do it every single time is not an excuse for anybody else to never try. Like, your lack of being able to do it perfectly every time is never an excuse for me to not try. In fact, we should spur each other on in love and good deeds, not lick each other's wounds and make each other comfortable, not living anything like Jesus called us to live. Come on, this, you need somebody, you need people in your life. That when you start going on and telling your story and polishing up that beam, they don't come along and polish it, they come along and poke it. <laughs> make that thing bounce your head and go, hey, dude, like, okay, there may be a twig over there, but I'm telling you right now, this thing needs to get dealt with. And until you deal with that, you stay away from them. Because if you go and try to deal with them before you let him deal with this, you're going to make a bigger mess, and then we're going to have to do surgery to repair them. And you're still going to be walking around with that same hideous beam in your head. And here's the truth. What happens is sometimes that thing gets worse. Because how many times when you go to somebody in anger, frustration, and a need to be right, does the conversation turn out well and then fall on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> See, I don't know this for a fact. I'll close up with this. I don't know this for a fact. But what if it took that long for Peter to settle in his heart that he was no longer angry at those people? so that he could actually speak to them in a way that was out of his, need, his desire to see them see truth rather than his desire to tell them what they did wrong. What if it took a little while for the Spirit of God to work on him and say, Peter, you're not ready because the anger of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. You're not ready yet, Peter. Peter, not yet. 
just come let me love you a little bit. Come let me show you. Come let me talk to you a little bit. Let me let you experience a little bit more life. Peter, let me just, I need to get, I need to deal with you because you've got an offense in your heart. You've got a beam in your eye. You've got an axe to grind and I don't want you grinding axes. I want you loving people. And after a while, he realizes, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) You were right, Jesus. They really didn't know. Because the enemy's speaking, right? The enemy's going, they knew what they were doing. What does that matter? How does that change what Jesus said? How does it change how we're called to live? He didn't say, like, it's okay to be offended, bitter in your heart, and angry if they knew what they were doing, if they did it on purpose. No, in fact, he said, what good is it if you love those who love you in return? Don't even the Gentiles do that. But I tell you, love those who spitefully use you. That means intentionally mistreat you for their own benefit. It's in there. And then he said, be like me. So I I honestly believe that, that God is rooting things out. I really do. I, I feel it. It's like the hound of heaven is after things and saying, I'm serious. He's like, I, I, I can't leave you this way. I don't need you polishing that beam anymore. I want you to let me take it and burn it up and destroy it with my love so that you can actually be someone who could help people. That's the whole point of that story. We've used it to, to keep people from correcting us. That's how we know we've twisted the word for selfish ambition and pride. We've used it to say, well, what about you? How are you trying to take the speck out of my eye? And we always have a speck. They've always got a beam. You ever notice that? Why are you trying to take the speck out of my eye? Maybe they don't have a speck in their eye. Maybe what you see as a speck is actually a shadow from the beam you're walking around with. <laughs> if you would humble yourself and listen, you might actually get set free. You know what the truth is? The truth is, is the more we understand what we've been forgiven, the easier it is for us to extend the forgiveness that was freely given to us. Why? Because freely I received and freely I give. If I understand that when I was at my worst, before I even came to, before I even turned to him. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean there doesn't need to be correction. Being forgiven means that He's not offended with me, and his heart towards me is for me. And he has grace, and he has mercy. But there still probably needs to be correction in some areas so that I can actually see the truth and step into what has been freely extended to me all this time. He's not in heaven with offense and offering forgiveness when you repent. He's in heaven with nothing but love for you, extended towards you, and when you turn, you receive what's always been available. That's how forgiveness and repentance works. That's how Jesus did it. It has to be, because they don't even know they've done something wrong yet, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why are we giving ourselves permission to wait until people realize what they did wrong before we change our hearts towards them? if he came and changed our heart when he died and gave his life on a cross? How can I claim that my heart's been changed by him and allow myself to have something in my heart that he never had in his? Come on, I'll challenge anybody to show me in the word this stuff. I challenge myself because if there's an example of it, then then Jesus' example plus whatever that example is is the way that we're called to live, and I can't find it in the life of Jesus. I can find him correcting people that he loved, that he had already extended forgiveness towards. 
but I can't find him wounded, angry, and needing someone to see what they did wrong before he begins to act right. That's a lie and it's a trap from the enemy meant to keep that thing that was done against you as your master for longer than it was ever meant to be. What was done is horrible. The fact that it's still controlling you means that that person is Lord, not Jesus. Because my life can only be okay when they see something wrong versus being okay because of what I see that he did right. I'm telling you. Not not because it's easy. I mean, not because nothing ever happens when you're a pastor, like you have this magic pill and suddenly nobody ever does anything that would ever cause you to have, like, like, to be offended or any of that kind of stuff. No, but because every single time there's a way of escape from that and the way of escape is reminding myself of his response to me when I did far worse to him and then asking myself, what, why would I give myself the right to act less than loving to somebody when he never gave himself that right? but that doesn't mean we can't correct and shouldn't correct and call each other out. That's not holding their sin against them. That's loving them so that they will see and they can repent and they can actually be brought back into fellowship and walk in the light as he is in the light. Because what happens when there's sin is there's a breach of fellowship. There's a breach of relationship there. That's what sin is. It's that separation. It's that breach. It's a lack of trust, and there's all this stuff that starts to come in, and all kinds of things have a way in there when we allow ourselves to stay in sin. But if we would just actually come into the light and step into what he's made available, instantly that relationship's restored. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one more example, and then I really will close. The, the prodigal son tells his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Only thing that I value of yours is what you're going to give me when you die. So why don't you do us both a favor and just give me what you... That's the language he uses. See, we see the prodigal son went to the father and said, give me my inheritance. But we have to understand, saying that, all he's saying to the father is, you have no value to me except for what I'm going to get from you when I die. So why don't you do us both a favor and just give me that now. Let's pretend you're dead. And I'll go on my way. And I'll leave. If anyone had the right to be offended, it's the father. He allows the son to go, but he's not on the porch offended. He's on the porch in love, ready to extend grace the minute the son realizes he needs it. It says, and when he came to the end of himself, he said, even the servants in my father's home eat better than this. I'll go to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be hired as one of your hired hands. And it says, and while he was a great way off, why? Because the father wasn't on the porch offended, waiting for him to come home and apologize. The father was on the porch with grace and mercy extended and all he needed to see was that his son had actually turned. And he comes to him and he overwhelms him and he won't even hear the son's apology because he realizes he doesn't know. He says, Father, I've sinned, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and the Father won't even let him talk about working his way back into the house, because he has no interest in the son trying to earn his way back in. He cuts him off there because he understands he doesn't know my heart towards him. So what does he do? Instead of arguing with him, instead of saying, well, we'll see, you know, you said some hurtful things before you left, and you did some pretty bad stuff, and you ruined this, and you wasted that, and you've made a mess, and you've done this with our family's name, and everybody saw. He doesn't go into any of that stuff. You know what he does? He says he doesn't understand that my fatherhood towards him is not based on his good actions. And so he cuts him off before he can even get to the part about earning his way back in. And he puts a robe around him. He puts shoes on his feet, puts a ring on his finger, 
It says, tell him to kill the fatted calf. Because this son of mine who once was lost has been found. He's come home. What's he saying? He's stepped into what has always been available. Because he's not on the porch offended waiting for you to act right. He's waiting for you to turn because he cares about you, not for his own sake. He's already reconciled the world to himself. Now we beg as though he begs through us, you be reconciled to God. So while I'm talking, if, if, if there's something that pops up, and there probably is, someone's face, an incident, could be a long time ago. If you feel that, and you know that you've given yourself permission to be less than Christ-like to somebody because of the things that they've done, I want you to just stand up where you are. And I want to start the process of us dealing with that. Come on, I want, stand, listen, I promise you, like, it was for freedom that you've been set free. Don't let this thing have another moment of your life where it's Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That person, that situation, that thing, listen, they, they don't know what they did. Yeah, they did. They thought about it. No, you don't understand. I'm not talking about in the moment. I'm saying in the grand scheme of things, if they knew who they were and they saw Jesus and they saw who they were in him and they knew who you were, they never would have done the thing that they did. Whether they thought they knew or not means nothing. The fact that somebody would treat you less than loving means they didn't know what they were doing because they didn't know what's been done for them. So I'm just going to make some room. If you want to feel like you want to come up front here, if you feel like you want to just, just pray, if you need someone to pray, the prayer team's coming up right now. They're going to be across this front. They would love to pray with you. But if you want to just deal, let God deal with it wherever it is, listen, because here's the thing. That person may be walking around with a stick in their eye, and you're the one who's supposed to help them get free, but you're so busy seeing them through the lens of that beam in your eye that you can't even be of good service to help them. Let's get that stuff dealt with so that it's not master one day more and so that we can actually help each other and start pulling twigs out of people's eyes. Keep us humble, Lord. So Father, in Jesus' name, I just pray that you would give us a greater revelation of what you've done for us. Father, that, that the lens that we see through would be Jesus on a cross, not a plank of wood stuck into our eye. God, that, that, that we would see Jesus hanging, brutalized on a cross, looking out at me while I was in pride and arrogance and yelling, crucify him, and said, Father, forgive him. He just doesn't know what he's doing. Would you let us Allow that to crush anything in our hearts that's less than Jesus. Allow it to crush our excuses and our yeah buts. Allow it to crush the psychology and the wisdom of man that exalts itself against the knowledge of God hanging on a tree saying forgive them. Allow it to crush the things that we've studied for so long and built cases on so long. Allow it to crush those beams that we've crafted that other people have come along and polished with us and given us permission and rights and given us things that Jesus never took. 
God, forgive us for attitudes that we've given ourselves in our hearts and allowed ourselves to have that don't hold up to the weight of Scripture, that wouldn't compare to the gospel of Jesus, this straightforward gospel that says, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ that lives in me. And if I can't find it in his life, I ought not find it in my own. Let that be crushed today. Father, would you come with your love and with your gentleness, but with your firmness and truth and show us where we've allowed ourselves to live less than Jesus and shake us from those places, God. Call us out of those places. Sometimes, you know, here's the truth. Sometimes when you're on the shore and he's calling you out, we saying that last week, you, you call me out beyond the shore into the waste. Sometimes the shore is comfortable because it's where we know and we've built a little sandcastle and we've got a little grill and we're planning to have lunch and we like our little world that we've created on the shore and Jesus is out there in the waves saying, why don't you come out here where I am because that's not where I want you to be. And sometimes it's comfortable to stay there, but it's only comfortable for a season and it's only comfortable if we close our eyes to the truth that is Jesus. Once we open our eyes to that truth and allow that truth to penetrate our hearts, we'll no longer ever again be comfortable on the shore when he's called us out into deeper waters. It may not be comfortable. You know what? This may cause us to have to confront some uncomfortable truths within our own hearts about attitudes and presumptions and things that we've allowed ourselves and maybe even taught others. But the gospel is worth it because we want truth more than we want to be right. Jesus, would you come? Spirit of God, would you come and begin to just bind up wounds and, and show us what we don't see? God, that we would be those people who could go and help people with the things that are stuck in their eye. But that we would leave people better than we found them, not worse. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.